Hey folks, this is Steve Bradley, God's Wordsmith, and I'm coming to you with the final teaching on Matthew chapter 17, which is a bunch of different things, a miscellany we might say, mustard seed faith, predictions of death and resurrection, and taxes. So death and taxes. So here are the texts. So at the... Um, at the end of the scene where Jesus cast the demon out of the boy, the disciples asked him, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief or the littleness of your faith, if you're reading a different version. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, different scene, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be, is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And then another scene, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Peter said, yes. And apparently Peter and Jesus were together and Peter answered for Jesus. I'm guessing here, but I think that's what happened. When he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, well, from strangers. In other words, no king is going to take taxes from his own son. That's just not done. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. That is exempt. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And of course, here I put down what the temple tax was. It was a didrachma, or two drachmas, and it refers to the half shekel, that is Old Testament, tax levied on every adult Jewish male for the support of the temple. And you can look at Exodus chapter 30 for that. So there are three things for us to see in this bunch of different items. The first one is the power of faith. I'm going to talk a while about this because it's so important. Faith is one of the keys to all of life. The reason I put it this way is that faith is a required element in many things. You take a new job and faith tells you that you can learn it and if you work at it, you'll be successful. I used to sell things to people and when I was uh, kind of the head of my department, I, t I told them everything in this job is about work habits. If you make the calls and you make the effort, you will make a good living. And I was right, because I had done it. I had faith that I could not only learn that job, but do that job, and I was going to do my best. 
You step into an elevator and faith tells you that you will survive the trip and so on. In the spiritual life, as in the rest of life, faith is you deciding to believe. In the case of a job, it's your learning ability and your work habits. In a case of the elevator, it's experience coupled with the fact that elevators are common means of transportation. The object is different, of course, because what Jesus was discussing was faith in God to do as he promised. And you can decide to do that as well. And here is, I think, one of the best Bible examples that occur in the Bible, and it's in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 13, the people of Israel are poised right outside the promised land. And they are—they have left Egypt, they have walked through the desert, they have spent about a year at Sinai. Now they're at the entrance to the promised land. God is going to give them this land. He has made promises about it since the days of Abraham. So, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. This is now the time for fulfillment of his long-standing promise. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So here are the elements. God said, I'm giving this land to you. Go check it out. This is yours. I'm going to let you evict all the people. I'm going to help you do that. And this land is going to be yours. So they went for 40 days, and when they returned, according to the book of Numbers, they brought up an evil report of the land. And here's what they did. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told them and they said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, you know, whenever there's a but, it's a bad thing. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak were giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. There were two million of them about, uh, including women and children, but probably, say, six or 800,000 men. And the people responded with, But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. Joshua, the son of Nun, who eventually became the great general and leader of the Israelites, 
Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then it will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows in milk and honey. They've been reduced to begging here. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. We'll just eat them up. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Well, the result is that the people decided to run away and try to return to Egypt. Imagine that. Wonderful place where they were slaves. They even uh, appointed someone to help them do that. And then the next morning, after God had basically told them, you're not going into the land, I'm going to reject you, they tried it. And we find out what happened in the book of, in the succeeding chapters in the, and then in the book of Deuteronomy. And God said about those people that refused to believe him, he said, they, shall, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. That happened when Caleb was 85, by the way. Joshua was also included in this, and he became the leader of Israel after Moses. In other words, there were two results. For those who refused to believe God, and in this case it was so obviously a decision. Disaster. For Caleb and Joshua, incredible blessing. There were just two, well, three if you count Moses, there were just two people in that entire group of folks, the people who had spied out the land and their followers, just two of them said, let's go on in. We believe God. He promised us. He can't break his promises. I mean, they had seen all these miracles parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptians, all the miracles in Egypt, all the things that happened at Mount Sinai, all that. And they basically just ignored it. Faith, folks, is a choice. This is why faith as a grain of mustard seed, and mustard seed is tiny, it's nearly invisible. Faith as a grain of mustard seed is enough because... As weak as it could be, that little, faith chooses to believe and obey even when there are terrible struggles. Yes, I will believe you, God. You made your promise. I will believe you. This is what the disciples were faced with when they tried to heal the demonized boy, coming back to Matthew 17. And that's why I wrote that one of the first things to do when you encounter a task that God has given you and about which he has made promises, is to get your eyes off the circumstances, off the demonized boy, off the inhabitants of the land, off everything, and rely on the promise of God. 
fix your eyes upon God who will respond to your faith. It's also, and this is very important to understand why Satan is telling you not to believe. God is not going to bother with you. You're not good enough. You're sinful. You have no reason to believe God. And of course, many other such things in our own hearts tell us that as well. Believe the God, believe God, not the devil or your own rationalizations. Just be certain that you're acting on a real promise from God and not your own imaginations. Okay, second, second part, second issue. Jesus discusses his death and resurrection. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about, to be is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, at this point, Jesus is reaffirming his decision to go to Jerusalem. He's in the north in Capernaum now, and he's going to go south to Jerusalem and he's going to go there to die. To go to Jerusalem and lay down his life. And his disciples are begging him not to do this. And I'm sure they discussed this decision among themselves. Since even when he was arrested, they wanted him to change course. And here's how Jesus responded after he was arrested. He says, don't you see that it has to be the, this way? I have to die. Besides... He says in another gospel, Don't you know I could call twelve legions of angels and my father would send them? Kind of reminds me of an old song. He could have called ten thousand angels to destroy the world and set him free. But he died alone for you and me. Jesus chose to lay down his life for us. And for some reason, and I think I would have been in the same boat here, because resurrection is unique. It never happens. Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead. He did raise the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. But what happens when Jesus dies? Who's going to raise him? Well... He was raised from the dead because he could not be held by it. And he lives now by the, by the power of an indestructible life, as we're told in Hebrews. So they just couldn't see this, even after Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, even after Jesus told them, nobody takes my life. I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Even after Jesus promised he would rise, they thought he was gone when he died. And folks, Jesus' resurrection is the singular event in all of space and time. Every person dies, nobody rises. That's how it works. Except Jesus both died and rose from the dead. And then item three, Jesus buys Peter's ticket. This is really a beautiful story. So the Jews come to Peter and Jesus and they say, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? 
And <clears throat> Peter says, yes, he does. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, that is exempt. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, and take the fish that comes up first. Now that's quite an amazing statement. Think about it. There's a fish in the sea, and when you put in the hook, you're going to find that fish. And when you pull that fish out, he's going to have something in his mouth. And that something in his mouth is going to pay for both of us. When you have, find, when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that. Give it to them for me and you. <clears throat> now, the temple tax was a half shekel levy. That's the Old Testament. And the, the didrachma was almost exactly equivalent to it. it. was charged all the adult Jewish males for the support of the temple. Now, what interests me about this is the way Jesus approached it. First is the question, do the sons of kings pay taxes? No, Peter says, kings collect only from strangers. Jesus says, well then, the sons are exempt. In other words, I really don't owe this tax, but go to the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, toss in a hook, and you'll catch a fish with a coin in its mouth. That's enough for the two of us, for both. Now, what fascinates me so much about this is the casual way Jesus handles it. It's pretty obvious to me, at least, from the text that Peter hadn't paid the tax. Doesn't your master pay the tax? Well, yeah, he pays the tax. And then Peter saying to himself, man, I'm glad they didn't ask me about me. So Jesus' point was essentially something like this. Here, Peter. Let me take care of that for both of us, for you and me. And this is a really delicate way of giving Peter the money. If you read between the lines just a little bit, you'll see that Jesus always has our interests in mind. He always includes us. He's interested in you. He's interested in me. He's interested in our problems, our needs, our taxes, our debts. Even for things like taxes. And he never forgets us. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Now I have a personal thing to say, and it's just a prayer request. On Thursday, a couple days from now, I'm scheduled for surgery. It's supposed to be a simple surgery, but it is surgery. And like someone once said, when they cut on me, it's not a simple surgery. It's me. If you're inclined to pray for me, please do. I'll be in the hospital a few days if all goes well, so you may not hear from me for a bit. The hospital stays projected at five days to deal with the recovery time. And in the meantime, I hope you're having a great day. And I pray that God blesses your life with his grace and goodness. You know, I pray for you guys all the time. 
I pray that these words will go to different countries where uh, people don't really know that much about Jesus and go where people are not, where they can't reach. I want these words to go far and be a blessing to everyone. May God bless your lives with his grace and goodness. This is Steve Bradley, God's wordsmith, signing off.